Hi, this is Dan Calandrello from Seton Hall. You're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Tune in. They're great guys. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead, guarded by Ochefu, gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Merry Christmas and welcome to this week's edition of Left Coast Pirates. Mikey, was Santa good to your family? Merry Christmas to you too, Tommy. Yeah, everything was good in the Deziri household. No complaints. Uh, here's my here's my intro for the show, Tom. We talked about uh, wrapping up last week's episode with just getting any type of win, and I would be happy coming into the show. And then I kind of watched that Seton Hall-Georgetown game, and I was kind of on the fence with my emotions. There was a lot of good things that were done in that game. There's a lot of things that we could take away and, and kind of analyze. And I'm, I'm going to kind of give you an analogy. This is kind of just the way the, the season's been going. I, if I related you bring back- up your brother, Mike, I'm cutting you out. I'm not, no, no brother to that, but I'm going to bring up my daughter. My daughter is five years old and she asked Santa this year for a goldfish. So I thank, thank you very much for the, uh, the beta fish recommendation. That was a big hit uh, when she opened up the present, but I got the beta fish, Tom, like a couple days before Christmas actually got here. And all my, myself and my wife were trying to do was remain in survival mode. You know, is this fish going to be alive when we open up the box and re- have the big reveal on Christmas morning? And I mean, it was just anxiety and anxious moments. We had it like buried back behind some sweaters in the closet. We keep on peeking and we, you know, we fed it a little bit and we changed the water and we were on pins and needles. That's kind of how I feel about this Seton Hall season. So I should be looking forward to the euphoria and the uh, the joy and emotion that were on her face when she opened up the gift and saw her little goldfish. But you know what? I'm, I'm kind of just happy that we got to the point of survival. We win the Georgetown game. There's no more injuries. The team doesn't have to go into a COVID pause. And hopefully we can kind of come back and kick off the new year here or wrap up 2020 and just kind of stay on this positive direction that the Hall are in. And I'm going to try to stay positive on today's episode. Mike, you've gone from being the Grinch to Mr. Scrooge and bah humbugging everything. But you know what? Let's see if we can bring you back into the holiday mood. So today on a podcast, we will review said win against Georgetown. We will preview the upcoming game against Xavier. We take a look at what the pandemic pandemonium brought us this week. And then we go behind enemy lines with Indianapolis star beat reporter David Woods to get an inside look at the Butler Bulldogs. But first, Seton Hall 78, 
Georgetown 67. Seton Hall ran out to a 17-5 lead to start the game. Jared Roden had a stretch of eight consecutive points for the Hall towards the end of the first half to maintain a 33-19 lead at the break. In the second half, it was the Miles Kale show as he scored 17 of the Pirates' first 22 points of the half, culminating with a four-point play with 13.37 left to push the lead to 19 points. The Pirates essentially coasted to a victory from that point on. All right, Tom, stats on this one. As you mentioned, Miles Kale breakout career high, 30 points, 10 of 16 from the floor, five of five from the free throw line and five of nine from three point range. Jared Roden posted his third double double on the young season. He had career highs or tied his career highs across the board, 26 points, 12 rebounds, four assists and Ike Obiagu, nine rebounds and nine blocks for Georgetown. Quadis Wahad had 16 points, 13 rebounds and two blocks for the team stats. Seton Hall held Georgetown to 34% shooting for the game and only turned the ball over nine times. They had 18 assists on 28 made baskets, but still got out rebounded 48 to 37 and 16 to six on the offensive glass. That issue has just still not resolved itself. Tom, for me, the turning point in this one, the first nine minutes of the game, Seton Hall jumped out to a 17 to five lead. Georgetown shoots two of 16 from the floor, combine that with another four turnovers. And then if you were to go to the ESPN app and look up the probability of victory at that point, Seton Hall reached 94% and then never dropped below 90 for the rest of the game. Georgetown would go on to, to miss 21 of their first 25 shots of this game. They just never got out of the block. And Seton Hall kind of just maintained a solid, comfortable lead from that point on. I mean, there was a couple moments where you're like, hey, is Georgetown really hanging around this close? But they were never really threatened. Okay, let me put my blue tinted glasses on and tell you one thing I've been saying for the past four years. I will suffer no more Miles Kale blasphemy on this podcast. I will not have you talk about him being benched. I will not have you talk about him being replaced in the starting five. I will suffer no longer, Mike. Do you understand me? So did the light bulb actually go off for Miles Kale? I mean, he started the game one of five from three. And he actually stuck with it. He didn't go into a shell like he typically does, right? Or or maybe it's just something about Georgetown and guys named Miles. Because the last time that Miles came out and played against Georgetown, he was five of six from three-point range at the Rock. And we all know what Miles Powell has done against Georgetown over the previous couple seasons. Tommy, are we getting the Miles Kale that we've always expected or knew was kind of there? No, Mike, you know, I don't think it's that. I think it's the team kept going to him regardless. How many times have we seen Miles hit a pair of shots, hit hit a pair of threes even, and then he gets benched? Or the team goes away from him on the offensive side and not, doesn't keep feeding him? I mean, Miles is not the kind of guy that's going to be making his own shot up. It, it's not in his skill set. We've seen that. When he's trying to create off the dribble, it just doesn't work. But Miles Kale needs to keep getting the ball. Now, does he need to shoot the ball 17, 18 times? No, probably not. But they kept going for him. And Mike, past three games, he has been lights out. 
12 of 21 from three. And just to give you an idea of what that means, he pushed his three-point percentage from 28% on the season to over 42 now. That's just nuts. He had a great game, and he's starting to step up, and maybe those statistical trends will continue. If Miles can shoot 40% from three-point range uh, consistently, I don't need the hot and cold Miles scale, but give me a consistent Miles scale, and that is another weapon that this team is now going to have offensively that was kind of a big question mark coming into the season. Tom, I'm, I'm going to say this. You know, we've been waiting for the Miles scale breakout. We got the Miles scale breakout. He breaks his career high, which was previously 23 can you remember how far back you have to go when Miles actually set that career high? I'm going to guess that was a sophomore year against Maryland, and that's totally blind. No, you got it. You're, you're spot on. But I mean, that's, that's, that's my not... boy, Miles Kale. That's what I know. Tom, that is non-conference play two seasons back. And we're sitting there going, look at Miles, young sophomore, on the road, Big spot for the Pirates. You know, after that Kentucky victory, can they back it up? And here he is stepping up, putting in his 23, and we think the sky's the limit. He only had one other 20-point game from that point on in his career up until the 30-point outburst. So, you know, I, I, please, I'm, I'm not trying to put him down here, but let's pump the brakes just a little before we start saying that we're going to get this kind of offensive outburst. From Miles consistently. That's it's all. amazing what happens when you keep feeding the hot hand. Now, should we expect this on a regular basis? No. I mean, you're who else in college basketball can you expect 30 points a game from? Marcus Howard's not walking through that door. So it's probably not going to be a consistent thing from him. But when they're hot, feed them. Oh, okay. So I'm going to go deeper into my almanac here, right? So Miles took 16 shots in that game from the field. You know, he has only taken that many shots twice before in his career. He had 16 shots in a 21-point performance in the 18-19 season versus Xavier. And then he had his career high of 18. All right, Tom, I'll put you on the spot again. You remember which game he had his career high of 18 field goal attempts? It can only be against Kentucky at the Garden because that's his real other kind of coming oh, you're out cheating. party. You're cheating. Wait, wait, where are you pulling these notes from? <laughs> no, that, uh, that one I would I, – I knew that one called as well. Miles Kales is my boy. So, so my point is this. I don't expect Miles – when you have Bryce Aiken getting more comfortable, Sandro taking more than five shots in a game, Jared Roden starting to step up more. I don't expect Miles to get 16 plus shots a game, but I don't want to see Miles go into the shell of, you know, a five shot, six shot performance. Sometimes when he even starts off hot in the first half and then you've seen him disappear, give me consistency. Like you said, feed the hot hand, but find a way to get this guy in the offense. He's shown that he has the capability to be a game changer when he's on. And he's not the only one that they kept feeding, Mike. Your boy, Jared Roden. A huge game. Well, they had to feed my boy because my other boy was having an off day. We'll, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to that in a second. But you know what? Casey Jacobson pointed it out in the postgame show, so I want to give him credit here. He highlighted the fact that, you know, as much as Mamu is the man, and they talked about this at nauseum throughout the, uh, the, the game telecast, that Jared Roden is the key in Seton Hall's four losses did you know that he's only shot two of 12 from three point range? That's four games and he's only attempted 12 three pointers and he's kind of been ice cold. So, I mean, I did some more research after Casey kind of made that point in their wins, the six of them that they've had so far in the season, Roden is averaging 18.3 points per game. And in their four losses, he's only averaging 11.8. 
who the heck knew that the barometer for Seton Hall's success was going to be Jared Roden? Mike, you're making it sound like Casey Jacobson, some sort of brain surgeon. Yes, when your supporting cast plays better, you have a better shot at winning. But I totally need a bigger sample size than just this season so far. I mean, Mike, four of those wins came against Iona, Wagner, Penn State, and Georgetown. Not exactly world beaters. He did have a really good game against Marquette, which is basically our big win of the season so far. So yes, Jared Ronan plays well. We're going to have a better shot of winning than not. But you know what? Let's wait a little bit longer before we start saying, well, if Jared Roden plays well, we win. But here's my takeaway. Two games in a row, the opposition has game plan to take Sandro out of the offensive flow. You know, making sure he doesn't get as many touches, double teaming, forcing him to pass out of the post. And in both games, Kale and Roden were super aggressive in hunting their shots in the first half. They kind of didn't kind of stick with it like they did against Georgetown in the Providence loss. But that was kind of encouraging that these other guys were like, all right, if you're going to try to take away Sandro, it's my night or it has to be my night. And I'm going to go out there and try to get you 20 plus and we can win this game in different ways. It doesn't have to be with Sandro putting in 30 on a given night. I, you, you don't you don't feel like that's a positive from the last couple of games? I'm going to stick with my point in saying that actually the team kept going to those guys when Sandro wasn't playing all that well. In the, in the game against Providence, they just seemed to go away completely from the concept of playing like a team. But moving on from that, who else had a really good game? Well, our big man in the middle had a heck of a game. Ike Obiagu. Like you mentioned, nine blocks, nine boards. Man, he was he was stellar. All right, so are we starting to see Ike develop similar to Romaro Gill, bear with me here, on the defensive side of the ball? So, so bear with me here for a second. So comparing Ike to his junior season or comparing Ike's junior season to Romaro Gill's junior season, you know, Romaro had that mini breakout uh, before his ankle injury against Rutgers, at Maryland and at Xavier, three wins for the Pirates. And he had a season-high five blocks versus Rutgers, a season-high eight rebounds at Maryland. But, Tom, he only scored 12 points in all three games combined. You know, maybe it's not fair to compare the row of last year to Ike, but, I mean, come on. I mean, you look at some of the stats that you've seen from Ike recently, the nine blocks, the rebounds. He's not getting into foul trouble. He's playing 20-plus minutes He's becoming an on-court defensive presence. Now, I understand he's done it against some of the weaker competition in the Big East, but if he gives you that defensive presence where if our guys get beat off the dribble and he's a true rim protector, that's all you were kind of asking for from Ike this year. Just be that rim protector that Roe was. I wasn't expecting him to kind of pick and roll and drop in 10 points a game. Hey, maybe there's a ceiling here. We've been picking on Ike at the beginning of the preseason stuff even in the first couple of games saying, hey, where's that player development? I'm starting to see that player development. And I love the fact that there were a couple of times that he actually didn't leave his feet and he walled up, Tommy. Oh, my guess. Yes. And that he walled up once during that game, which matches the number of death stares that he gave to Georgetown players during it as well. But, you know, you know, we like to poke the bear. We like to kind of take Kevin Willard's quotes after the game and take them to task a little bit. Maybe he had a point about Ike, though. 
He said that of the two players that had the hardest time coming back after the quarantine, Obiagu was one of them. Maybe he's starting to feel more comfortable out there and he's feeling like he knows what his position is now. We also said that early in the season last year, Ike had that ankle injury. I believe it was in the Wagner game, like the very first game of the season. And we kind of downplayed that injury. But maybe a big guy like that, you know, just needs to have, you know, healthy legs underneath him in order to kind of have the impact that he's having. So, you know, we kind of poo-poo some of the injury reports from Kevin, but maybe this one was spot on. Maybe Ike not being 100% out of the gate last year kind of stunt his development a little bit. But as we take some time to say, well, maybe Kevin Willard had some points with his quotes, we go to our favorite segment of the podcast. And now, Deep Thoughts with Kevin Willard. Okay, Mike, after this showing, Kevin had some interesting thoughts to say about how Sandro played. And, you know, as much as we probably defended Kevin with his post-game comments about Ike right now, I got a feeling we're going to go in a different direction when it comes to this one. So let's hear him. He's talking to Dave Popkin and our friend John Fanta on the post-game. Sandro's been our workhorse. He's been playing 39 minutes a game, 38 minutes a game. He's had to take, he's had to be in every big play. He's had to be, you know, that's mentally taxing. And he just didn't have it today. You know, he was, you could see it. He just, we, you know, it wasn't physically, he's mentally tired, um, which it, he should be, to be honest with you. This is a new position for him. I've asked a lot of him. I think he's played as good as any player in the country. Um, but, you know, just like, you know, it happened with Miles is, junior and senior year miles would have a night like this where he just you know the difference between sandro and miles miles was a guard so he had the ball in his hands a whole lot more so there was times where he could get a, get it out of him um you know he could he could get a shot where San, you know i have to work to get sandro a shot because he's 6 11 um but sandro has played phenomenal and he just had one of those nights where you know mentally he's exhausted all right, Tom, I, I was kind of torn. I think this is a good spot in the, uh, the the podcast to play Deep Thoughts with Kevin Willard because I think it transitions into the sour grapes and gripes section. So like I said, I was kind of torn here. I didn't know if Sandro's performance should fall into the blue-tinted glasses section because, hey, they won a game in which he only scored two points and only took five shots. Or should we actually kind of go into the analysis of how a player of Sandro's caliber, you know, a, a player who's projected to be now Biggie's player of the year, you know, all American and only gets two shots in the first 32 minutes of this game and ultimately only scores the two points that we mentioned earlier. I mean, I, I understand he had a little bit of foul trouble and he filled the stat sheet in other ways early on to have an impact. But now this is three teams that have now put a direct focus on keeping the ball out of his hands. You have the Oregon game, you got the Providence game, and now you have Georgetown, and the record is one and two. And, and you could make an argument that he didn't really even get the ball or kind of make himself present in wanting the ball down the stretch in the Rhode Island game. I mean, I think that Sandra needs to overcome the extra attention that he's now going to get. And I think Kevin just lined up a bunch of excuses there to kind of protect him. So yes, in the post game, that's kind of the coach's job to kind of shield his player when, when he has an off day. 
But once again, I, I just thought the excuses were a little extreme. How about, hey, I'm proud that the team rallied around Sandro when he had an off game and we found different ways to win. Hey, we're going to start seeing this more and more throughout the season. We're going to have to find ways to get Sandro some different looks and get him his shots. Or, hey, I'm going to go back to him and say, look, you know, as much as you're trying to take you out of the game, I, you got to find a way to get me more than two shots, you know, 30 minutes into the ball game because we're not going to be playing Georgetown every night and we're not going to have a 15 point comfortable lead. I just, he, he better go back and into his chiropractic tendencies and give me something, Tom, because I didn't like what I heard relative to that quote. Only you would think about taking a game where Sandro scored two points and putting it into the blue tinted glasses section. And you know, I found the whole quote awful. It sounds like you're making excuses. It sounds like a helicopter parent saying, oh, this is why my boy didn't play well. All you got to go out there and say is, you know what? He had a tough night. Luckily, the guy stepped up around him. And what is this? Miles had games like this. Miles never had a game where he only scored two points when he was the man. Stop it. Stop comparing the two. You know what this is? He's not he's not emotionally exhausted. He's not mentally exhausted. He's not any kind of exhausted. This is just a process of learning how to be the man. For three years, he was second fiddle. This is one of those things where he's now the big cheese and he's got to learn now to play through that adversity. This is fine. He had a bad game. That's all you had to say. Move on. Make one more analogy, and maybe I'm reaching here a little bit, but isn't it well known that Luca Garza for Iowa is the man this year? And in the games that he's playing against inferior opponents, he's dropping like 35 and 19 boards against these teams. Tom, Georgetown is the doormat of the Big East right now. So if it happened on the road at Creighton, where he just, you know, he had a bad game after playing four games in seven days, that's fine. This was Georgetown. You can't impose your will against Georgetown? Is it a bad look? Absolutely. But this stuff happens. You know what? If he comes back again this week against Xavier and, and then again against Butler, then you got a bigger problem. Then it's a trend. Outliers don't affect me that much, and I don't care who you played against. We're moving on here. Okay, so if Sandro's an outlier, I'm a little bit concerned about the impact of our new additions and the bench play because now we're starting to see a little bit of a trend and it's not as much of an outlier. You got Bryce Aiken who got the most minutes so far on the young season. He logged 22 minutes, but he shot one of nine from the field. He did have six assists, but he was 0 of five from distance with some really deep forced three-point attempts. And he just hasn't gotten into the flow yet. Then you have Taco Molson, 17 minutes, one of six from the floor, two turnovers, and his drives to the basket, as much as he's creating nice separation to try to get there, I'm starting to get into your mindset of he doesn't finish well. They are crazy flips at the basket. And then you have Tyrese, 17 minutes, seven points, three rebounds, but another 0 for 3 from the free throw line. And he's not even close. He's now 3 of 13 for the season. He's shooting 37%, Tom, for his collegiate career. He's worse than that this year, but 37% from his career at the free throw line. We're going to talk about the upcoming matchups for Xavier and Butler this week. And we're going to highlight some of the impacts that transfers and freshmen are making on these rosters. And you have Trey Jackson with a DMP 
and you have Long and Stevens, your two freshmen, for uh, highly not highly touted, but your two best freshmen for this recruiting class, getting one minute of garbage time. Tom, that I gave you a lot to digest there. How, what are your thoughts relative to the way that the bench and the rotation is being? integrated into the lineup okay so you can forget about the jahari long and dominguez stevens one minute of garbage time it was actually less than that they just roll it up to the nearest minute when you get into the box scores it's a shame that in this game against that opponent you couldn't find time for some bench players Trey Jackson can be lumped in with those guys. I told you it wasn't a big deal of him getting some time last week. I told you it was nonsense with Kevin Willard saying, oh, it forced us into playing him. You had both Ike and Mamu get two fouls each in the first half. If something doesn't scream, we need Trey to play a few minutes for us. More than that, I don't know what it is. Now let's get into the meat of the subject here. Bryce Aiken still is not shooting well, but he didn't look as forced as he did the previous week. He seems to be getting a little bit better feel for the offense as the six assists will show you. I think he'll come. I think he's got to stop taking all those threes. He's got to realize he's got a spot on his team now, and it's not being the man on it. I think he's got to kind of come to Jesus with that. To Kyle Molson, Mike, he is, he's going to be what he's going to be. It's not going to be this quick and easy transfer from the MAC to the Big East. I told you this at the beginning of the season when you were already dusting off Miles Kale's starting spot for the guy. He's going to give you what he gives you. He still plays hard defense. He still boards well for his size. But yeah, he makes a nice little play and you're thinking, oh, he's got separation. He flings one up at the rim. I've been saying that since day one. Enough. Tyree Samuel needs to get his butt into the gym, stand in that free throw line and work on form because he gets that ball and he just chucks it up. And we can't have him doing that, Mike. He's way too talented. He's way too much of an important player in this rotation. It's always interesting when a player can be as confident as they are from three-point range and then all of a sudden at the closer distance just are is not as comfortable shooting the free throw. So that, that always kind of is a head scratch for me. I could never figure that one out. We're talking practice, Mike. No, practice. A, People don't a, practice free throws. That's the uh, problem. The, the free throw thing is sometimes mental too. So I, I don't know what it is relative to that. On, on a bigger scale, like you said, let's talk about Molson and Aiken because they, they create this depth for Seton Hall uh, at the guard spot that if they want to be successful long-term this season – they got to get consistent play. I, I was waiting for you to pick on me because I did say that I thought there was a possibility that Molson might play more minutes than Kale down the stretch this year. And you know, maybe that maybe there's more of a balance because Miles is starting to kind of you know break out a little bit. I just want to call to kind of maybe know his role a little bit better. I don't mind if he's gonna be aggressive going to the basket because he's gonna get some foul calls like he did in the St. John's game, and then he's gonna have a game like he did against Georgetown where it just doesn't look pretty. I wanted to take the long distance three that he took and just take that out of his repertoire for now. I don't need him shooting three pointers, two or three steps behind the line. That's just, that's just not in his game. I mean, I, I just want him to give me that Brian Lang, John Allen mid range game. Cause I think that kind of suits him better. But then again, on one of the times where we kind of break the zone at the free throw line, you know, there was, there was one time that he took it to the basket and drew a foul. Then there was the other time that he turned and quickly shot. And, and that thing wasn't even close either from, from 15 feet away. Get him out on the break again. He was doing better when he, we were forcing the turnovers and he was filling lanes, you know, just get out there, get some easy buckets. 
my bigger issue is this Bryce needs to see a couple baskets go down. So when he hit the, the first couple, when he came back, hit the corner three, uh, you know, I believe it was against, I don't uh, know if there was a first couple. I think that was it, Mike. I think that was the only shot that went in. No, that the shot against look, he made the shot against Louisville too. There was there was a couple buckets that you're like, all right, I see some. I, there hasn't been a lot. What do you want me to say you here? You can't give me a couple buckets over five game stretches, Mike. You can't I'm reaching give me here. That. I'm reaching. I'm trying. I'm oh, trying because I hope you stretched before this morning's podcast. Bryce has that in his repertoire. If you listen to what Jared Roden said post game, he's like, look, that shot looks forced. That shot looks unnecessary. That deep three from straight away that he took, I think like three or four times in this Georgetown game. But he said that he's seen or they've observed Bryce make that shot 10 times in a row in practice. If Bryce makes two of those threes, this is a 20 point runaway blowout. There were moments when if he can make a big shot, that's just going to be a shot in the arm for this team. And they just, they haven't had that yet. And, I, and I'm waiting for that to still come. I hope it does. And I know you're getting a little nervous because it's now we're 10 games into the season. He's been injured. He hasn't got comfortable yet. Are we going to see the Bryce that we're kind of projecting from his, you know, his junior season at Harvard? If, I, there's a little doubt now, right? If some butts, Mike, if some butts. You know, and but some of these shots are leading to bigger problems, not just Bryce missing shots and not scoring, but it's leading to scoring droughts. In the first half, we had a seven minute stretch where we only scored three points. So it went from 12.55 to the 5.48 mark in the game. So to Kyle Mosen scored a layup to break it. I mean, a lot of these shots are coming in these moments where we're not scoring anything at all. And I think Bryce is looking at going, I'm going to give the team a spark. I'm going to shoot one up here. Sure. And I kind of have no problem with that because that's kind of what I expected Bryce to be, to be that aggressive shot hunter, the guy who can make a difficult shot, uh, creating his own look as the shot clock ran down. And a lot of people are going to sit there and go, Oh, that, that droughts an aberration. I mean, look at Shavar, and Aiken combined, they had 11 assists in this game. And I went back to watch the film. Yes, I went back to watch that game a second time just to kind of analyze the breakdown of those 11 assists. Tom, I didn't see a lot of dribble drive penetration. The majority, if not almost all of them, were Shavar and Bryce kind of passing around the perimeter for the threes that Roden and Kale knocked down. Now, I'm not saying they weren't good assists. I mean, you still got to put the ball on their hands, ready to shoot, kind of in a good spot. And we've seen how sometimes pick and roll basketball, when you're passing it cross court, could completely take the guy out of his shooting rhythm. So, so good job for Bryce and Shavar from that perspective. But when you're going through a seven-minute drought, the reason why you're going through that drought is because typically you're settling for perimeter long-distance shots. And if they're not going down, and Seton Hall is not always a knockdown three-point shooting team. And you don't have a guy that can get into the paint, draw a foul, create for others. You're going to see these droughts. So we need more from Shavar and Bryce in terms of dribble penetration and creativity in the lane from our point guards. And I did not see that in this game, hence the seven-minute drought. I can't believe you sat through this game a second time, Mike. Going into this game, I thought... The biggest thing I had to pay attention to was seeing something great for our woe do you see that moment and just listening to stupid things that the announcers said. So, hey, what kind of mic flops and drops did you hear this week? All right, so here's my biggest pet peeve, and then I'll give you a couple others. Um, last year, 
we used to joke and say, hey, how long was it going to take before they put up the graphic of the fat Miles Powell before he kind of reshaped his body into that stealth new look that he had and, and committing himself to his game, right? That, that was the running joke. Over under five minutes before they put up that graphic. And then we also used to joke and say, how many times are they going to call Romaro Gill a legit 7-2? Just, they have like their bag of tricks and they're starting to develop their bag of tricks. And this is the entire Fox Sports broadcast crew. No matter what the game is, they're now going to this new one where they say, hey, Seton Hall is the third largest team in the country on average. I'm over it, Tom, already. We're 10 games of the season, and I'm already over it, aren't you? Oh, it's going to be a long season, but hey, at least Jim Jackson went two for two. Jim Jackson's becoming one of my new favorite guys. During the game, the play-by-play guy asked Jim Jackson the following. He goes, people I'm sure ask you, don't you miss the seasons living in Southern California? Well, maybe on Christmas Day, you you missed snow just a little. And Jim Jackson replied with what all Southern California residents reply with, no. I've had enough seasonal change growing up and being there until 2015. I've lived everywhere. Nah, I'm good. What people (laughs) don't get, Southern California has seasons, and let's fill everybody in on them. There's early summer, there's summer, there's late summer, and then there's next summer. That's four seasons, Mike. You can get a little bit of the leaves changing. We get a little bit of fall, I, I right? A little bit of fall, but but but, but, I, but, but I could do enough. without. I could do without the snow shoveling. I could do without scraping the ice off my windshield. I could do without all the black ice out there on the roads, creating seven car pileups on the turnpike. I'm I'm over it, Tom. I am blessed with the uh, sunshine state. And the, the the sunshine tax that I'm paying in Southern California, San Diego. Amen to that. But now we did see some moments that made us say, whoa, right, Mike? So let's talk about what you thought was the whoa. Did you see that moment? All right. I, th- I thought there were a couple that were up for nomination this week. I'm going to I'm gonna start with the Miles Kale four-point play, right? It kind of reminded me of Powell a little bit. The kind of way he just came off the pick and grabbed the ball at the top of the, you know, the, the top of the key. Hits the three, gets fouled. It, it, that's kind of very similar to the kind of plays they used to run for Powell. And I was just like, oh, that, that brought back memories. But I'm, I'm going to throw you another one. I want to say there there was this two-handed monster dunk by Ike in traffic. And it, it kind of came with under a minute to go in the first half. Sandro drives from the right wing into the paint. And it was I think the shot clock was even running down at that point. And with his right hand off the dribble, he kind of shuffles it through traffic into the key. Ike grabs it and then he splits these two undersized defenders and then dunks in the face of seven footer Ego Effie rotating over in an attempt to block the shot. To me, if, if, if that was a rim rocking dunk where I thought he was just going to like pull himself up. It, it was, it, it showed brute force. So you got two plays. You got, you got the classic Miles Powell, you know, emulation of Kale for the four point play. And then you got Ike rim rocking a dunk, Tom. I'll leave it up to you. Well, I'm going to agree with you on the Miles Kale four-point play. That was nice. I was almost going to pull off the Kale from Delaware or something like that, but that was going to get a little weird. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to go a little bit different with Ike's play. Ike's entire game was block and rebound last week. And what made me go, whoa, was a little bit different. So follow me here. So Georgetown puts up a shot and Wahab grabs an offensive rebound turns and looks straight at Ike's face 
and passes it out and just just in one of those moments where he's like no man i'm not that crazy to go in on that the ball gets swung around to the other side and shadir bile goes in for the dunk and ike sends it back he was almost like didn't didn't you see your boy not want to shoot it on me what are you crazy that was my woe did you see that moment i remember that sequence he looked like a deer in the headlights he was like uh nope 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 not not going back up here and then when his buddy when his buddy goes to attack he was just like oh that was pretty stupid (laughs) That, that was really stupid so you know mike it was that was our like our little Christmas present early. We thought we can get through the week without any bad news, and but the pandemic pandemonium strikes again. And I know you wanted to talk about this. And you're gonna probably make fun of me because I always say we don't talk about women's basketball on the men's podcast, but I'm gonna make a reference to the Duke's women's basketball team deciding to voluntarily cancel the rest of their season. And you're like, well, why is that relevant to what we're talking about? in terms of the men's game. Well, you know, here's a team who is in the same umbrella of, you know, the Duke athletic program and what we had to listen to from coach K just previously on last week's episode about saying it's not the right thing to do. And now you have the women's team kind of supporting that mindset by walking away for the rest of the year. It's not like they were struggling. They were three and one. The women made a decision to walk away and shut it down for this year. I'm concerned this time, and maybe I'm maybe I'm reaching a little bit. If the women's team can shut it down and kind of support the message that Coach K was trying to basically, you know, throw out there in the media after they lost to Illinois, could we see a team like Duke, if they continue to struggle, decide to shut it down as well? And does that set the wrong standard for the rest of the college basketball landscape if an elite program like Duke decides to walk away under the leadership of Coach K. Okay, Mike. Again, I hope you stretched before this morning's recording because you're all over and and you're going to pull something if you keep this going. The key term was the women's team decided to voluntarily cancel the rest of their schedule. Not the coaching staff, not the administration. This was a decision by the players to stop playing. This had nothing to do with anything Coach K was jabbering about. And we already took Coach K to task last week about him making these complaints. Your team's struggling, so now I'm going to complain about something else so I can take the focus off of my team's play. Let's say that Duke's men's team decides to quit for the season. For one, Duke's men's team basically is the moneymaker for that school when it comes to sports. So let's not think there's not at least a little pressure coming in for the administration to say, keep playing, boys, keep playing. Will other teams see this and act as a standard? I don't think other teams take Duke and hold them up on the pedestal that you are right now, Mike. I think this is going to be an individual decision, school by school, because certainly no one outside of the Ivy League has actually canceled their season. So this is going to be a step-by-step, school-by-school process. I mean, Mike... You had to pull, have two pauses, one right after another, and they're playing now. So I'll, I'll spin this another way for you. We talked to Ben Steele, you know, beat writer for Marquette and on the last podcast, and we talked about the isolating and not being a part of the rest of their friends, families, society, and kind of staying in their own little team bubble. Let's say you get down to the end of the season and a team is struggling 
with a really poor record and they got four games to play and the stress is now starting to wear on the team. And there is no postseason hope for the program for the rest of the schedule. Do you see people now sitting there taking a step back and going, why risk our health? You know, we're, we're, we're eight and 12, we're eight and 14. Let's just shut it down for the rest of the season. I, I don't see that happening at the end of the season unless they have a COVID scare. If they have someone come down with COVID in that tier one group, then I could see them canceling it. But if they're still healthy, I think it's going to be one of those things where they're going to get maybe not, maybe forced is the wrong word, but you got to finish what you started just because you're not having a good season. That's almost a better reason to keep playing, finish up strong, finish what you started. Now, if you had a COVID scare, then you might say, you know what? We have to go into a, you know, a 21 day pause or whatever. And we've got four games over the next 28 days. Mm, let's pull the plug. Cause it doesn't make sense to come back for that one last game. That makes more sense. But I don't think you just quit on the season because you're having a rough season. I mean, that, that could be true for every season, every season, even healthy seasons, you could have bad seasons going. I mean, we've seen teams that don't win in conference. Hell, we've seen DePaul not win a whole lot of games. Man, we are just pounding on DePaul. Dan Stack's going to take us to task. But you've seen DePaul not have good seasons. They're not quitting at the end of the season. They're still going into that play-in game at the Big East tournament and trying their best. So, I mean, I don't see it. And knocking off Xavier, right? Speaking of Xavier... You know, they're one of those teams that we have uh, has faced a COVID pause, as well as the other upcoming opponent on our schedule uh, this week in Butler. So let's kind of start diving into the weekly preview of what's on the schedule. So it's not just Seton Hall who's had to face a pause this year. It's starting to become kind of par for the course across the landscape. Let's break down the Musketeers. They're currently eight and one on the young season. They're one and one in the Big East. And their first five games, in my opinion, were Cupcake City, and they had to pull out a couple squeakers within those first five games. But then kind of like what most big Power 5 programs do is they kind of use those games as a tune-up to kind of hit their stride. And then they come back and they win at Cincinnati in their big rivalry game. And then they win by 22 versus Oklahoma in the Big East Big 12 Challenge. And then they get hit with their COVID pause. And when they come back, uh, they win at the buzzer versus Marquette, 91 to 88. So, you know, they, they've had some, you know, really great early season success sandwiched around a pause, Tom. And, so and you know, they could have came into this season with their heads hanging low because they lost some really quality players. They Najee Marshall left school early. Tyreek Jones graduated along with Quentin Gooden. But they've had some of the younger guys stepping up Zach Fremantle, a sophomore forward from New Jersey, is really playing well this year, Mike. He's got 16 points a game, almost eight rebounds, and he's shooting a blistering 57% from the field, including 41% from three. During that big out-of-conference win against Oklahoma, he had 28 points. However, he struggled in his first two Big East contests. He's only been eight points per game. That just tells you how soft the rest of the country is, right? 
But probably their most important player on this team is senior point guard Paul Scruggs. He's scoring almost 16 points a game, and it leads the Big East with almost seven assists per game. Here's my issue with it kind of breaking down. It's not even an issue. It's just kind of like we talked about the guy that needed to take the next step. And for everybody, they were putting Paul Scruggs into that category of if he can take a leap, then maybe maybe Xavier can actually do things relative to where the coaches have kind of put them down on the preseason biggies polls. And here's Paul going from 2.9 assists per game the year prior to, like you said, almost seven a game at 6.7. I mean, that's leaps and bounds in point guard play that I don't think that they were going to get from him. I think they were going to lean on him to kind of be that extra scoring punch. In three of his last four games, he scored 20-plus, including 29 in their game against Marquette. And get this, Tom, of his last 18 three-point attempts, he's knocked down 12 of them. That's very an insane my, clip. Very Miles Kale esque, if I oh, do say you're so. You're just myself. trying. To, you're just trying to find an excuse to say Miles Kale as often as you can <laughs> on this episode. They're also having a lot of support from the rest of their players. They've got Nate Johnson, who's a grad transfer shooting guard from Garner Webb. He's averaging 13 points a game, shooting 54 percent from three. And you would think he'd only be shooting a few a game. No, he's got almost six a game. Kiki Tandy, a sophomore shooting guard, scoring 10 points a game. Jason Carter's a senior forward, 7.7 boards. Dewan Odom, he's a freshman, almost five assists per game. So think about that, Mike. They're getting 12 assists per game from their point guards, man. Wow. Finally, Adam Kunkel, the hero of that Marquette game. He's a transfer from Belmont. He's putting in nine points a game. So you know, they're doing it collectively as a team. You know, there, there's not this budding superstar. I, I guess you could say it's Scruggs and Fremantle are making a case for all Big East honors, but they're getting contributions from all aspects of their rotation that you maybe didn't expect coming into the season. They're getting production from their transfers. They're getting, Tom, get this, they're getting production from their freshmen. I mean, it, it can be done. We're not talking about guys that are, you know, you know, top 25 recruits in the country. Yes, DeWan Odom was ranked 54th in this class, but they're getting production, right? Right, And it's frustrating to see the breakdown of production that, that we're going to talk about in behind enemy lines with David Woods for Butler, and then look at the stat sheet and see what Xavier's getting from their young guys because, you know what, this is a middle-of-the-pack Big East team that is overachieving at this point. So even if they kind of come back to earth or they have a good season this year, guess what? You got a lot of hope for the future in these programs. And I'm sorry, that's just a little frustrating to not see that from the guys from the Seton Hall side of the ledger. Well, Mike, so, you, you know, they always say you can't get people to come to South Orange. Have you been to Cincinnati, Mike? Have you ever seen what that city looks like? And they're still convincing people to go to Xavier. It, it's just going to be an interesting matchup. I mean, this team can score the basketball. I, I didn't think they were going to because last year they were not a good shooting team overall, but they're scoring 81 points a game. They're shooting 39% from three, making over nine makes per game. And they have four guys essentially shooting 40% or better. I mean, I think Scruggs is at 39.5%. So, I mean, that's just outstanding. And in their loss to Creighton, 
they go eight of 32 for 25% contributing to why they lost that game in kind of more of a rock fight, 66 to 61 would have never expected that with both of those offenses taking the floor, you know, and here's a team that shares the ball, Tom, they're 15th in the country averaging 19.6 assists per game. I just, I would have had Xavier in the bottom half of the big E standings in all the projections and they're making me a believer right now. And they're making this a very difficult game to kind of get restarted after the holiday break. But Xavier's not the only Midwest friends we're seeing around the holidays, Mike. We've got the Butler Bulldogs coming into town on January 2nd. And what better way to preview that game than to sit there and talk with our friend from the Indianapolis Star, David Woods. He has been a reporter for the Indianapolis Star since 1994, covering major sporting events such as the Olympics, and more importantly, covers the Butler Bulldogs. Please welcome back to Left Coast Pirates Live, David Woods. David, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, happy holidays and happy new year to you guys. Oh, same to you. Once again, thank you for coming back on the show this year. <laughs> How were your holidays in particular? And uh, kind of the question we've been asking everybody is, how are you and your family doing relative to COVID-19? We've been pretty fortunate. But I have at my uh, sister and brother-in-law live in, live in Missouri, and they, they both had, they both had the, the virus uh, briefly, didn't have too bad of symptoms. My nephew lost his taste for a couple of days. He's actually a high school football and basketball coach. So I, I'm not sure any family gets out of this completely unscathed. You just hope you get mild cases and are able to move on. Well, let's kind of stay with that theme. So Butler is one of those programs that wasn't only hit by COVID-19 this year, but they had a very promising season that came to an abrupt end last year. The Bulldogs got out to that hot 15 and one start. They were ranked as high as number five in the AP polls. And then Seton Hall comes to town and they rally back down by 10 and a half to pull out the victory at Hinkle. And then this kind of ignited or kickstarted, uh, a four and eight slide to end the season. Which Butler team were we going to see in the NCAA tournament if it was played out? Yeah, I, I felt like Butler was really, and that's a really good question, but I felt like Butler was really getting his mojo back at the end of the season. They uh, they, they won their last three games. They beat uh, Xavier on a Kamar Baldwin last second shot. In fact, it was his career high, scored 36 points. And I think about, oh boy, I think about, at least about 20, I think he had a 25 point second half, in fact. And um, he, he's such a great closer. I felt like Butler was was in a really good place heading into the Big East and NCAA tournaments. And of course, we'll never know. It, it all ended abruptly, but I, I, I felt, I felt uh, pretty confident that Butler was gonna make the Sweet 16. Well, Seton Hall fans clearly thought that Miles Powell should have won Big East Player of the Year, but Tom and I talked about it with one of our local beat writers that going into the award ceremony, we thought Kamara Baldwin was not getting as much attention as he probably should have based on some of the performances he had that you alluded to, the the career high against Xavier, the multitude of game-winning shots that he hit throughout that year. How dangerous of a player was he going to be if you had to match up against him in the tournament? So that's the, that. That was the thing. He was. If you kind of, if you think of the uh, of a basketball game, you know, like a relay race. I mean, Butler had uh, Kamar Baldwin as the anchorman. So they, I mean, I think they were going to win. You know, most of the close games. Um, and 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 even if he, uh, I remember one time, believe it or not, Butler's only only NCAA turn or Big East tournament victory ever. I think it was when Baldwin was a was a sophomore. I think against Seton Hall. 
And because he got penetration, Tyler Weidman made the rebound and made the basket. So I really felt just, I mean, based on achievement and not preseason hype, I felt he should have been on one of the All-America teams, you know, first, second, or third team. I think he was obscured by Powell and, and Marcus Howard. But I, I still think he was, I don't know, he wasn't a great pro prospect because of his height, but I still felt like he was a All-America player. And I thought some of the snubs were just inexplicable. No need, David, to bring up that quarterfinal Big East tournament victory. I could I could list off a bunch of heartbreakers that Seton Hall has dished out to the Bulldogs, but I, re- I remember that game clearly. I was a nip-and-tuck battle down. It was a bottom. really good game. It, it was, was a very good, good game. game. Well, a spectacular player as Kamar Baldwin was for you guys, I'm not going to miss him at all. And, and I know a lot of Big East teams are going to miss him. He seemed to hit every big shot when it counted. I think he had three game winners last year alone. But he's not the only guy that left the Butler team last year. I mean, you lost Sean McDermott and Tucker and Jordan Tucker. They've either graduated or moved on from the program. And these were three of your four top scorers last year. How much of an impact on this year's current team have you seen this departure have? Well, it's it's just been uh, it's been a crusher. I mean, you just can't replace that at a finger snap. Four of their top seven players are freshmen, which in in most Unless you're, uh, you know, Duke or Kentucky or Kansas, you know that, that that's 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 a formula for failure because these aren't these aren't five star rated guys. It's a it's a good class. I don't even know who the which one of the of the freshmen is the best player, but but they have missed those guys enormously, and it really is too bad that uh, that Tucker, you know, who's a native New Yorker, didn't come back for another season because he he would he would have made a huge difference. Been their leading scorer, he would have taken the most shots. I think he would have continued his growth, which I do think he made a lot of growth at Butler. But they, um, and then they didn't, ha- they haven't had Aaron Thompson for the last three games, who's the point guard that that really makes the team function. So uh, their their win over Providence uh, in in their last game, I, I think you know could be uh, could end up defining their season if they go on and have a decent one. I'm still kind of don't think this is an NCAA tournament team. But Thompson is so influential, and the freshmen are coming on so rapidly. It really seems like after Villanova and Creighton, you know, the Big East is just a big glop. You know, all, all these teams can beat each other, you know, on, on any given night. Well, like most coaches, I, I assume that Coach Jordan was hoping that the non-conference play would allow for the team to develop some of these new roles and some cohesion but that COVID-19 pause hit the program on November 26th after just playing one game, it seemed to come to a stop. How difficult has it been for the program to have to shut down so early and what impacts on the team are you seeing so far? Well, they, they certainly just disjointed. Of course, they had a, uh, they actually played fairly creditably when they had to get back and, and play against Villanova. I think they only trailed by two points early in the second half. They ended up losing by 19, but that was kind of a 10 point game. And, uh, but then with, without, without Thompson, uh, they didn't play very well against Indiana kind of faded late. And then they lost to Southern Illinois, which I actually think is going to be a very good Missouri Valley team, but they fell behind the SIU Salukis by 18 points and had their 59 game non-league home winning streak stopped. That was the longest active streak in the country. And, and that, that just, and, and just everybody was about abandoning ship at that point. Think, well, boy, is, is Butler going to finish 0-20 uh, in, in the Big East? Uh, I mean, there, there were definitely questions on, on my Twitter timeline about that. And then they came out, and really without, you consider since those three guys you mentioned, they, they lost, and they didn't have Aaron Thompson, 
And um, Providence has just killed Butler since since Butler joined the Big East. Um, and they're coming off that dispiriting loss and fell behind by seven points in the first half. And they end up coming back and winning that game. Um, it, it was just it was just very encouraging. Freshmen scored 38 of their 70 points. Um, they got what they needed. And now I don't know if they can beat Providence back to back. They, they play Providence before playing uh, Seton Hall again. But uh, at, at least it gives some opportunity for hope. And that's probably going to be the whole theme for Butler season. Just kind of hope for the future because I, I still I, they probably would need to win, win half their Big East games. So let's rewind for a second, David, back to those three losses. Is Are those a fair barometer to kind of assess this team or is it basically just chalk it up to a COVID-19 reassessment period? I think the latter. I, it, you cannot tell what Butler is or is going to be, they, they considering that they had all, all that time off. And then they 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 played uh, Villanova without Bryce Golden. Uh, Golden was was a little better against Southern Illinois and uh, and against Providence than he was earlier. I mean, I, I really think Golden is a very is a very uh, gifted big. You know, he can bang inside. He's got some pretty good moves. Uh, he 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 can defend. He can go outside a little bit and shoot. So in some respects, uh, Butler needs Bryce Golden uh, to be its best player. He, he, he may not be right now, but that's, that's a lot to ask of him. And then, and then uh, Butler's getting contributions from four freshmen. But, yeah, it's, it's just so hard to tell what this team – and this could have been because they, they, they went on pause and because all those freshmen have had to kind of be rushed into the lineup. It's funny that you say that, that Bryce Golden needs to be their best player because Aaron Thompson was just a gate. I understand it was only two games, but he was averaging 17 points per. He was averaging five assists, you know, and then he gets hurt in that Nova game. One would think that Aaron Thompson is the head of the snake uh, for Butler. Well, and- he, he is. Bryce Golden, I probably should rephrase, Bryce Golden needs to play at like, a, like you know, consideration for all Big East level. They, they, they need that out of him. Uh, Thompson, I think if you were, you know, the Big East picked a team for the Pan American games, you know, like, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And if they had a team that said, you know, give, we're going to make uh, Kevin Willard, you're, you're the coach of this team. We're going to play this international schedule. You need to pick 12 guys out of the Big East for this team. I am completely confident that Aaron Thompson would be one of the guys picked and, and he might even be the starting point guard. Well, I mean, Thompson loves to play defense, too, and that's a hallmark of a Kevin Willard point guard. So he was supposed to potentially come back for this last Providence game. He was questionable on the return. Does the time off with the holiday now put him back in a projection to to be available for this next Providence game and at least for the Seton Hall matchup? I'm not sure. I, I would not be surprised if, if he uh, played on this Butler trip, but, but Butler's been very secretive and and uh, and not forthcoming uh, about his status but really his injury at villanova looked so bad it almost looked like potentially season ending so in some respects the fact that it was a sprained knee uh you know in a way was good news for butler and uh i, I don't know if he'd be back or not but I, I would not be surprised if he plays if he plays on this trip but there's no guarantee that he will we don't know anything about a secretive coaching staff about injuries. We just had we just had um, Bryce Aiken come back, and he was supposed to not play for another game. Uh, you've been mentioning a lot of the guys uh, that are the supporting cast, but let's talk a little bit more about Jer Bolden. Uh, he's a senior grad transfer from South Carolina. He's scoring 14 points a game. He had 20 points on six of nine three-point shooting versus Indiana earlier in the season. How much of a part of this team is he going to play? 
Well, he's a big part. He's also, uh, because he's a, he's a fifth-year senior and has played college basketball, he's sort of being force-fed into a leadership role. It's like, okay, okay, Joe, you just got here on campus. That's cool. Now, you need to be one of our team leaders, even though nobody knows, knows you or has ever played with you. But he, he has really embraced that role. I, th I think he genuinely likes it. Uh, he's very encouraging and supportive of the freshmen. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think he's a great player, but he's a good player. Uh, he still might be leading the Big East in, in threes made per game, now that we don't have Marcus Howard in the league. But, but he, he, he is a very key piece, um, and, and he'll probably end up being the team's leading scorer. But, but he, you know, he's not – he can't be Kamar Baldwin. You know, he's not you – know, uh, you know, he's not Miles Powell. He's not Marcus Howard. He's a, he's a pretty good player, and, and I think Butler's definitely going to have to do it collectively. But, uh, but I'm sure uh, – you could tell, too, that after uh, his success recently, Providence really threw a lot at him and tried to get him from getting touches outside the heart. So I'm sure he'll be a focal point of, of defenses all year because Butler doesn't have that many three-point threats, although oddly that I think they're shooting like 38% from the arc, which isn't, which isn't that terrible. Uh, one of the freshmen, Chuck Harris, uh, had a 19-point second half and made some threes. So so maybe I overstate the uh, concern without the three-point shooting. But I, I think I think Butler's going to have some wretched three-point shooting games too. I, I just don't think they can make the three consistently with the group that they have. Well, David, let's talk more about that freshman group because you keep on bringing up bits and pieces of their early success. It seems like the future could be pretty bright. You, you mentioned Chuck Harris, freshman guard, averaging 11 points a game. He logged 37 minutes in that matchup against Nova and put in 22 points and six assists against Southern Illinois. And then you also have top 100 recruit, you know, off to a fairly decent start, seven points a game, almost two and a half assists. You know, what have you seen from those two that you like going forward? Well, that, that's definitely uh, Butler's backcourt of the future. I mean, um, I could, I don't think it may all happen that Butler also was hoping to get uh, Bo Hodges eligible. He's a transfer from East Tennessee State. was actually a Lute Olson Award National Player of the Year finalist. So he comes back next year, you know, plus those freshmen. Since this year it doesn't count, if, if Aaron Thompson came back, I could actually make a case that, uh, that Butler would be a contender for the top three in the Big East you know, in 2022, you know, maybe none of that happens, but the, uh, but the Tate Harris backcourt, I think is very promising. Uh, Miles Tate was South Carolina player of the year. I think he, I think he's high school won state championships, all four of his years there. And he had, uh, he didn't shoot very well against the Providence, but he had uh, eight points, eight rebounds and seven assists. And it, it usually, I, I don't know, <laughs> you'd have to, to, do some advanced math to do that. If your point guard has a game like that, I bet the team, I bet that team wins 90% of its games. If a point guard has those kind of numbers. Uh, so th th those two, those two guys have been terrific. Uh, Tate's a little undersized. Harris is a, is a little bigger, a little stronger, maybe more college ready, but Tate did most of the ball handling against Providence. Um, so when, and Butler will probably play some lineup with Thompson, Harris and Tate <clears throat> might make them vulnerable um, on rebounding at the uh, Bryce brothers, NZ and Golden in there. That, that would be an interesting lineup for Butler. Let's focus on this recent win against Providence a little more. You guys just came off a, a span where you played four games in seven days, and the Providence win was quite impressive. You had five players scoring double figures. You had a game high of 14 from Jacoby Coles, another freshman. 
and you held Providence to four for 26 shooting from three, which doesn't make sense if you look at the team's percentages because Butler opponents have been shooting 38% from, from three, including this four for 26, and that ranks 303rd in the country. So how important of a confidence boost was this win in the big picture of well, that, that's a good question because I, I think it does uh, re- really reframe the narrative for them tremendously. It's like, can they can they win any Big East games? Well, yeah, they, they've already won, won one. In fact, I think Providence is projected to finish third in the league, although I still think third through 11th uh, is about the same. I mean, I mean, Seton Hall could finish third. Uh, hey, hey, maybe DePaul, maybe this year DePaul breaks through and finishes third in the Big East, although they've played one game. But I, I think it does show that... Um, that, uh, you know, these kids can compete at this level. I don't know if I want to, you know, overstate their defense. I mean, Providence is, is a poor three-point shooting team. So you get a poor three-point shooting team that has an off night. I mean, the numbers can look like, oh, man, they just – it's just like the uh, – it's like the playing against a Bayhine zone at Syracuse. You know, nobody could make a shot. So I, I don't know if the defense is, all, is, is, is as good as all that. But when Thompson comes back, I mean, he's a – He's really elite defender, and I, I, I put really a lot of the season on on Aaron Thompson coming back and, and being really as big an influence on on his team as probably any player in the Big East is on his team. David, as a longtime Knicks fan, yeah. I'm a huge Patrick Ewing supporter. But as Tom would say, I bet you a California burrito, Georgetown is not finishing third in, in the Big East this year. <laughs> Well, maybe not. Maybe, well, maybe maybe this is not the Voyage year. But isn't that kind of true of most seasons in the Big East? It's like the first two teams are usually well-defined, and then the rest of it, a game or two in the season, and you can go easily from being third all the way down to ninth sometimes. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the uh, uh, Butler beating Xavier in the last game of the regular season last year, I think that went from uh, – I think Xavier was going to get a, a bye and a pretty good seed. And then they ended up being a uh, uh, having to do the play-in game, and then they lost, I think, to DePaul. So mm-hmm. if, if yeah. on Selection Sunday they might have been omitted completely. So that Baldwin shot, you know, might have shot them completely out of the NCAA tournament, which we did not have. But it's um, yeah, it, I mean, Butler two years ago finished last in the league, and, and I said, well, I mean, how bad were they? Well, they were seven and eleven, and that was last. I mean, that that's how compressed it was. I don't know if the league will be quite as compressed this year. I, I know, and Connecticut has a talented team. You know, maybe Connecticut's the third best team, but but uh, hey, everybody thought they'd just come in and just clean up on the Big East. But you know, they weren't cleaning up in the American Athletic Conference. So, so I'm not I'm not uh, buying stock in the Huskies just yet. But it but it it is a very compressed conference, and and uh, you know, I'm impressed that Seton Hall has, has, has bounced back, you know, with, with such a good team after losing such talent. It's And, two that, you know, the home court, I think, matters just a little, still a little bit because travel is involved. And I think we're seeing that the home team is still doing better. Uh, I follow the Big Ten closely. It, it certainly made a difference in, in, in the Big Ten, the home team winning. But in the Big East, uh, it's just it's just hard to know. I mean, you you'll, you'll definitely will see more than usual of teams losing at home and winning on the road in, in their home-and-home home series. 
Well, I, I definitely agree with you. The competitive <laughs> nature of the Big East has been nip and tuck. Probably, like I, like you said, probably for the last four or five seasons, that spot for third has been some type of a tiebreaker or some kind of, you know, down to the last game of the season. And it comes down to games like we had last season against you guys. So this is the first time that the, the Bulldogs are returning back to the Rock since Sandro Mamukelashvili made that game-winning lob tipping at the buzzer. So these programs have played really tight games over the past few seasons. You mentioned the Big East tournament quarterfinals. Seton Hall has won at Hinkle Fieldhouse on the last game of the regular season to kind of punch their ticket uh, the last couple of years. Is there a bit of a rivalry developing in the eyes of the fans out in Indianapolis? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I just the, the program that everybody in Indy hates is Xavier and continues to be Xavier and probably always will be Xavier uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, the, the team that, and, and really probably the team that would create the buzz after that would be Villanova, you know, because it's such a great national brand now. Um, you know, you and I know how good that the Seton Hall uh, Butler games have been, but I, I don't know. Um, I think that the, the fandom is definitely, you know, getting more used to the to the Big East and 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 how those things go. I, I don't know if there's a if there's a rivalry yet, but in terms of of series of of uh, close games and well-played games and good games i mean the butler seaton hall series you know might be uh, as good a uh, little individual series as the league has had since realignment uh someone could sit there and maybe run some numbers and go like what's been the coolest series since the league uh, was uh, constituted this way you can make a case that you know the butler seaton hall games have like all been good and that, and that would be factual you know david we pick apart seton hall's game ad nauseum and people people wonder whether we actually like the team but let's pick apart butler a little bit more here you know you've mentioned that the team has struggled shooting the three ball earlier and on the other side they haven't been defending the three that well but they've also struggled from the foul line. They're shooting 61% for the season so far, which is good for about 311th in the nation. Also, they're not passing the ball around all that well. They're at 11 assists a game. Are these two statistical trends going to be a big area of concern right now for Butler heading into this game? Or should this play itself out a little bit once they get used to each other? No, I, I think this is going to be a bad team at the foul line and uh, and <clears throat> as compressed and, and tight as these Big East games are, especially down the stretch. Like, I, I, I don't know how they're going to resolve it. Um, part of me doesn't uh, believe a lot in team free throw percentage because I think it totally depends on who's shooting them. But as I go through, down through uh, Butler's lineup, I, you know, I don't I don't know if they have any 80 or 85 percent guys on the whole roster. And, uh, and the guys who tend to get fouled a lot seem to be the guys who miss shots a lot. So, yeah, I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a big concern. The assist ratio, that, that, I think that's a product of not having, not having played together. I think when, when Thompson goes, goes, comes back, the, the team will be much better organized. I mean, he's literally out there, you know, coaching guys on the floor, motioning them where, where to go. Um, I mean, he, he, re he really has, has, a, has a good idea of, of, of what he's doing. And of course, too, uh, you can make a big, uh, nice pass to someone, get him an open shot, and if they if they clank the shot, that, you know, then then the then the pass doesn't count as an assist. Um, but the, I'm I'm more concerned about the free throw shooting because I'm I'm not sure that's going to improve a lot. And uh, and I and I, I you know that could be that could be the difference between like um, you know seven and thirteen and and ten and ten, and that 
you know, that that's that's an enormous difference, uh, basically, whether you make the NCAA tournament or not. David, let's step away from the team statistical analysis for a second. Is there any particular matchup? I think I want to see uh, uh, Bryce Golden against Mamu. I mean, I, I, I'm going to see if, you know, how, if Golden can hold his own and if he's uh, if he's strong enough. You know, his um, his brother, Grant Golden, is like a like an all-A-10 player at Richmond, and those two guys played against, against each other a lot during the uh, – during the quarantine and, you know, iron sharpens iron, that type of thing. Uh, but if, uh, if, if Golden can kind of hold his own uh, in that area, I mean, I, I just think that that would be, that would be a huge uh, plus for Butler. And, and if, if, uh, if Mamu, uh, you know, has his way with Butler inside and guys getting foul trouble and so forth, I mean, the game might not even be competitive. Okay. So besides Golden holding his own, give me two or three keys for a Butler victory against the Pirates. Well, I think I think they have to uh, have to not have one of those uh, swoons like they had against Southern Illinois when they got outscored twenty six to two. So th- 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 this is a I don't t- t- call a team fragile, but their but their offense has to play well enough to give their defense a chance. I mean, it almost sounds like like a football team with well, you know, you got to be decent at both ends. But they 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 cannot be like so clunky on on offense that the that the uh, you know. Are, are just awful and, and allow Seton Hall to get easy, easy scores. Um, and then if they do keep it close, uh, you know, can, you know, can Thompson uh, or, or the freshman guards play well enough down the stretch to pull it out? I mean, I mean, Butler would certainly be an underdog at Seton Hall. I don't think it's out of the question uh, that they could, you know, take the game down to the wire, but I, that's going to be, it's going to be another big challenge. And plus this will be their first, um, It'd be the second of two back-to-back road games. You know, how, how is the travel going to affect them? That's always hard to measure, but I, I think I don't think you can just say, well, that does stuff like that doesn't matter because I think we've seen it does matter. Okay, David. At risk of getting your hometown crowd angry at you, we're looking for a prediction. Who wins this game? Well, I, I don't make predictions, but I, you know, I think if you Seton, Seton Hall should win the game. Well, David, we can't thank you enough for coming on during this holiday week and spending some time with us and giving us the behind-the-scenes story at Butler. We appreciate you big time, and we wish you nothing but the best and Happy New Year's. Well, same to you guys, too. I hope the uh, I hope the Big East gets five or six teams in the tournament. That, that, would, be, that would be great. David Woods, everybody. Okay, Mike, David Woods thinks Seton Hall should beat Butler. What do you think the predictions are for the next two games? Uh, I want to start the season, Tommy, on a positive, and I want to I want to say it's a two and zero. Oh, but you're going into a road environment versus a team that's playing well. You kind of got to get jump started after the holiday break. I don't know. It's it's going to be tough. I mean, I want to say that Seton Hall is better than Xavier, and I really kind of want to focus in on that Zach Fremantle Sandro Mamukelishvili matchup at the power forward. I think whoever gets the best of that matchup is really going to be able to kind of dictate play throughout that game. I also think Seton Hall needs to do a better job of closing out on three-point shooters in that game because if they don't and they're giving Xavier wide open looks, I don't think you're going to see Xavier kind of do a repeat of that 8 of 32 that they pulled versus Creighton. And that could just end up being a doomsday scenario for Seton Hall if you know Xavier's going to shoot 40% behind the line because that's just going to open up things in the middle for guys like Fremantle to kind of take advantage at the rim if Seton Hall can't kind of crash down and help out. So that, that game scares me a little bit. 
But to be honest, if we're transitioning back over to what David was saying relative to the Butler game, yes, Butler has some potential, but Butler is still trying to find themselves. Butler is a team that probably will not make the postseason. On paper, Seton Hall is the deeper, more experienced, and more talented team at this point in time. You got to get that home game versus Butler. And I'll, I'll come back and tell you why in a minute, but give me your thoughts here real quick. Well, you know, Mike, I look at the Xavier game this way. I don't think Zach Fremantle is going to be able to handle Sandro. Sandro's a whole load of player. He's a senior. He's going to put him to task. But I think that that point guard play over there in Cincinnati is going to give us a hard time. Between Paul Scruggs and Dewan Odom, I think they're going to have a, their way with our point guards, and I think that's going to end up being the difference. So I think we're going to end up losing at Xavier. I see a competitive game, but I just don't see us taking it over the top. However, I see us coming back after New Year's. The New Year hangover is going to be over. I could see us putting a pound in on the Butler Bulldogs. So I'm, I'm not going to be disappointed if they go one and one and one of the games is a road loss to a team that's, you know, was just uh, in the top 25 and is eight and one on the season with some quality wins under their belt in Xavier here. But Tom, you got to look at this upcoming schedule. It'd be really nice to get these two wins and to move to five and one in conference play, because bear with me, we are known for our January swoons under Kevin Willard. I mean, they, they kind of avoided it a little bit last year, but listen to this schedule after that Butler home game on January 2nd. You have at Creighton, who's ranked in the top 15 in the country. You have a road game at DePaul, which has been a house of horrors for us over the years. Then you come back home to play Xavier. So there's that quick turnaround versus a team you just played. So there's that familiarity. Tough to play a team twice in such a short window. And then they go at Villanova. Tom, that, that could be a little mini four-game losing streak, and I hate to even tell you that they wrap up the end of January with two more games against Villanova and Creighton. I mean, they, they could literally have four to five losses in that stretch, and if you don't pad it with a five-and-one start, it could get kind of ugly. You also miss the app Butler sandwich into all that. And if you've got a team that doesn't have its head on its shoulders, they could lose that easy. Hinkle's not an easy place to go and beat people at. But you want that 2-0. I'll take that 1-1 one one at this point, Mike. And, you know, it's just it's going to be a tough stretch. And you mentioned last year's uh, Seton Hall slide. It just got pushed into February, Mike. Let's not forget that. Regardless of what happens and what results we see, Mike, I know you're going to be at the TV glued to it like I am, and I'm going to be saying, go Pirates. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other of your favorite listening platforms. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle, at Pirates. We are also proud members of the What You Expect Network of Podcasts. And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 